Um, thank you for asking me to preach this morning. And as I was, I've been thinking for a while about what to say, and I consulted with Pastor John. I had kind of more of a theological uh, message ready and uh, wasn't feeling super comfortable with it. So he just suggested, well, uh, share what the Lord has been teaching you. Uh, that they share more of your heart uh, from Japan and from uh, the last four years. And so uh, that sounded good to me. So I sat down and I just made a list of some spiritual lessons that the Lord uh, has shown me over the years in Japan. Uh, Helen Rosevere, who was a missionary to the Congo, she was uh, captured by Congolese soldiers, I believe, in the 1960s, a, a rebellion and uprising there, and really suffered some uh, terrible things at their hands. But uh, she took a couple years to recover, and then she went back to the mission field. And she, she said this, it's always kind of stuck with me. She said, 16 years ago, I talked about the desperate needs in other parts of the world. Now I tell Christians, wherever they are, that they must refall in love with Jesus. The candidates for missionary service were not staying the pace. For all their training, they were not even staying the first term, let alone for a lifetime. I had to ask, why this appalling fallout rate? They are responding with the wrong picture of what mission is all about, thinking it will be to what they can do to serve others. When they get to the mission fields and are not liked or wanted, people take what they've got to give and throw them out. They can't stand the hurtfulness, so they come home. Uh, so Helen Rosevere learned a very deep lesson in her life, and it's a lesson that I think we all uh, will come face-to-face to face with eventually, uh, that God is not ultimately concerned about our success, is he? Uh, he's not ultimately concerned about how many uh, people that come to Christ through our ministry or how many uh, believers we've discipled in their faith and helped to build them up. But the main thing he's concerned about is what's your relationship like with me? Uh, what's your relationship like with Jesus? And he's always after that in one way or another. And uh, we found that to be true in the, on the field. So... I'm just going to be sharing with you a little bit about that this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time. I pray that you would guide the words from my mouth and guide me by your spirit, that it may be a blessing uh, to those who are listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, uh, the way I'm going to do this, I'm just going to give a little brief introduction and define a few terms and then go right into uh, some lessons the Lord has been teaching me over the last, actually more of a 10-year period. So I'll be sharing with you three uh, lessons this morning. So um, first, I just wanted to, def to define a few terms. The main term I wanted to define this morning was the word missions. And uh, it seems to me, traveling around and, and listening to people, there may be a bit, little bit of confusion or misunderstanding about this term today. I hear it used quite a bit. Uh, as in we're doing missions, or uh, this is a mission field, and we're a missionary, and such, uh, such, so on and so forth. And some of that's fine, uh, and there's a sense in which uh, there is a general meaning to the term, and that we're all on a mission, and God has made us missionaries in that sense, uh, to share the gospel with people around us and expand the kingdom of God. But there's also a technical uh, definition of the term that I feel is important, if we're going to understand what Jesus wants us to do in the world. And so if you could turn with me to, well, actually it's on the screen, you don't have to turn, but Romans chapter 15, verses 19 to 21, is I think the best place in the Bible 
to give us a de- Paul's definition or, of what missions is. So I'll just read this. Romans 15, 19 to 21. Um, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And so in this passage, Paul talks about two types of places in the world. Uh, There's a place in the world where Christ has been named. And if you could uh, go to the next slide. Uh, There's these areas in green in the world that emissions the world. We call those the reached parts of the world, a reached country. Uh, And a reached country doesn't mean everybody's a Christian, doesn't mean there's not a lot of problems still in the country. But what it means is, relatively speaking, there's enough Christians in that country to sustain the church by themselves and for the churches to reproduce. Uh, Generally, people have put that around 5% or more evangelical Christians in a country uh, makes it or qualifies it to be a reached country. And so thank the Lord. There's a lot of green on that map, isn't there? Uh, God is on the move, isn't he? And uh, we've gone from 120 believers after Christ uh, rose again into into heaven uh, to half the Roman Empire to now, some people say, 2.3, 2.4 billion uh, people named the name of Christ around the world. That includes uh, Christians of all stripes and, and persuasions. So very encouraging on the one hand, isn't it? But there's another uh, type of place in the world, and that's where Paul says Christ has not been named. Uh, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Uh, and let me tell you something. Uh, Paul is not exaggerating. Uh, there are places in the world where people have never been told of Jesus Christ. And this is a, these are the mission fields of the world. And the area in red... Uh, is basically the main target area left in terms of the task of missions. Uh, We call that the 1040 window. And these are countries, uh, most of North Africa, the Middle East, India, parts of Asia. It looks like China. It appears to me China is now green. I I could be wrong, but if I'm right, I'm very happy about that. There's many millions of Christians in China now, praise the Lord. Uh, But that's the target area, and it's called the 1040 window. And about 3 billion people live there. And 2 billion or so of those people, from what I've heard, literally have no access at all to the gospel in any shape or form. They can't hear it on the radio. They can't see it on TV. It's illegal. There's no churches around, no Christians to tell them. Uh, And so this is the mission field of the world. Now somebody says, well, God could just save them, right? He could uh, just reveal himself in a flash, in a dream, in a prophecy. And yes, he could. But if we'll look at the next set of verses, uh, the main way he chooses to do this is through you and me. Paul says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so normally the people in these countries hear about Jesus from people like you and me. Uh, People who go cross the culture learn the language of that country, and begin to share with them the message of Jesus Christ. And so this is a task of missions, and um, this is just to define it so we can know what we're doing. If we don't know what we're doing, uh, we're not going to be involved in doing it. 
And so I feel it's important that we define, that we have a clear idea, understanding in our mind of what this task of missions is about. It's about going into the unreached territories with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, just to move into uh, my next point here, I want to begin to share with you some of the lessons God has taught us along the way here. Uh, but when you do this, one of the things we've discovered is that it's really a fun thing. I don't know how to put that more in an educated way. I guess you could say it's a joy. Uh, it's enjoyable. We love it. Uh, but one of the first things we found was that this is really interesting uh, to do evangelism among an unreached people group. And I'm coming from a background of uh, I never wanted to be a missionary, actually. Uh, I, I ran away from it uh, for a while. I told myself I was never going to go back to Japan. I lived in South Philly for a while after college. And I even broke off uh, my dating relationship with my beautiful wife uh, because she felt called to missions and I didn't. And I didn't want anybody dragging me to that mission field again. And uh, so, you know, it was off for a little while. But uh, I didn't want to go back. And part of the reason was I felt we were um, probably overemphasizing missions, overrating missions to the expense of the needs that we had here at home. And I wanted to see more people stay here and be involved uh, with the needs in America and not send so many people overseas. So that was my mentality. But then I did a, um, I did a uh, pastoral internship in South Philadelphia during seminary. I had left my job in the public schools teaching. I was in seminary. And uh, it was okay, but it wasn't quite the fit that I was looking for. So the next summer, I said, well, let me try a missions internship in Japan. And so I went back, and we did, and we just had a great time. You know, I, I, I hesitate, I don't want to burst your bubble, but we're not missionaries because, you know, we want to uh, earn some brownie points with God or, you know, chalk up suffering or something like that. We just had a great time. Uh, it was so much fun. And uh, just a little bit of a recruiting pitch. You know, missions is not boring at all. It's anything but boring. It may be difficult sometimes, but it's not boring. And uh, if any of you are looking for uh, something to do, some way to serve the Lord, uh, and you're not sure where exactly you fit, uh, maybe dip your foot in the water of missions. Give it a try and see what it's like for you. But we just uh, really enjoyed it. So much variety, so many different things to do. Uh, as, a, as a pastoral intern, I found myself working, spending a lot of time preparing sermons. On the mission field, I had something to do every day, different to do every day pretty much. Uh, different age groups, uh, different t types of ministry, different types of outreaches, and I really enjoyed the variety, for one thing. But the other thing I found was, was really interesting and enjoyable was just doing evangelism among an unreached people group. Uh, it was very interesting. You know, here in Philly, if you've ever done any kind of evangelism in Philadelphia, you go up to somebody, and there's some sort of history, right, with Christianity, uh, we've been around a while in this country, and we have a, a sort of a mixed record, don't we? There's been some good things. There's been some not-so-good things that we've uh, done to people or impressions we've given. And so people will tell you, oh, yeah, I've heard that already. You know, or I've been, I was baptized uh, when I was in elementary school, but you don't see any uh, fruit in their life at the moment. Or I was raised Catholic, and I went to temple, and I had an atheist professor, and I lost my faith. You know, There's some sort of past, some sort of history with Christianity. Well, what you get in Japan, Japan, by the way, uh, is the world's largest nation that's unreached, very few Christians. What you get is total 
um, clean slate with people. Uh, there's no prejudice. There's no preconceived notions or ideas or history with Christianity. Uh, and people are just open books. Well, open blank slates, I guess, if you will, uh, when you share the gospel with them. They like to hear it. They enjoy hearing it. It's news to them. Uh, and because they've never heard these things before, they, they give some really interesting responses. And they're just processing things for the first time. And, and so it's really refreshing to hear the kinds of responses that they have to the gospel and to stories that we've known all my life. Just to see the light bulb go on for them for the first time. To hear them hear this news for the first time. Wow. It's a fantastic thing. Uh, and so we really enjoy that. Uh, just a few... Um, a few things I've heard over the years in Japan. I wish I'd written more down. This is just from memory. But um, one person said to me, uh, is, is there really a God who can see everything we do? We were reading Psalm 139, and she was just struck by that. And she was actually horrified by the fact that there may be a God who could see everything we do. Uh, another lady, this reminds me of uh, when the New Life team was there, in our open house meeting, uh, she said, wow, if there's a God who can see all we do and read all our thoughts, we're all, I'm going to hell. <laughs> and uh, we didn't want, well, I guess we should have broken the news to her, but we, <laughs> we were a little more indirect than we should have been maybe. But yeah, uh, that's correct. Uh, a little boy, when we were in a, in a small town we were in at first, he said to me, what's that thing on the side of your house? And I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, and he stooped down in the dirt and he drew a cross. He said, what's this thing on the side of your house? And I realized this child had never seen a cross before in his life. Uh, so it gave me an opportunity to then tell him about Jesus and why he died. And so just the, the freshness and the, the newness of it all uh, to them is a very interesting thing that we find in Japan. So um, as, we, as I th- thought about how to apply this point... Um, Maybe there's somebody out there who is, who is like me, uh, perhaps, in my 20s. You think missions is overrated, uh, and you think there's not much of a need for it, and uh, we need to keep more people here. Maybe not. Uh, but if there is, yes, I agree with you in a sense. We, let's not overemphasize missions too much. There are needs uh, here in the States that we need to be aware of. But let's not forget, let's not forget about the millions and millions of people overseas uh, who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who God is sending us to go and tell them about that. And uh, also just to recognize that it's not a chore. Uh, it's a joy when we serve the Lord. It's a joy. And we want to share that with you and testify of that to you uh, and invite you to, as Carl has appealed to you, to ask the Lord where he might be calling you to participate in this spectrum of, of participation that we call missions. There's so many ways to be involved, not just direct full-time missionaries. There are so many ways to be involved. Uh, and if you're interested more, we can talk more about that. So consider where God is calling you uh, in this call to, to take the gospel to the nations. The second lesson that the Lord has taught me is about pride. And uh, I've entitled this, God Hates Pride, Really Hates Pride. Uh, because this was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, pride is not, is not exactly something that I'm going to go to counseling for if somebody accuses me of pride. Uh, I might feel a little bad, uh, maybe a little guilty, but it's not something that I'm, I'm going to feel really bad about if I notice it in myself. 
But I discovered uh, after a little while that God has different ideas of this thing called pride. And he really does not like it. And um, let's, let's look at Proverbs chapter 6. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. I'm just going to read these as well. And it says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let me tell you, I've started paying more attention to that list. uh, Because when God says he hates something, he doesn't like something, he is not joking. Uh, And he goes to great lengths to deal with it, to remove it from our lives. So when we first arrived in Japan in 2013... Uh, I had high hopes and high expectations of what we were about to do. Uh, I was 40 years old. I'd been through about eight years of preparation for that moment, uh, three years of seminary, three internships, one, one year-long one in Japan with a Presbyterian mission, two years of finding a missions organization, and about uh, maybe a year or so more of raising support. And uh, so I'd been through a lot of preparation, and I was ready to go. I was ready to hit the ground running. And one of the things I wanted to do was pastor a church because I wanted to get some leadership experience for church planting. And so uh, I thought I had that worked out. I thought it was arranged, and this was a church that I was going to become the pastor of for a couple years while Annette was in language school. And uh, the denominational leader basically promised that I could do this, and I was happy. After three months, I had sort of a, a verbal agreement that this is what I could do. Well, then a week later, there was a meeting uh, behind closed doors. Uh, I wasn't invited to it. I wasn't consulted. uh, And they completely flipped that decision. And they gave the church uh, leadership to somebody else and uh, without consulting me or asking me. And I found out about all this later. So I was was shocked. And I was confused. I didn't know what to do. Uh, This was my plan. And now my plan was completely gone. And I just went out to a restaurant, and I said, Lord, what do I do now? What do I do now? I was living three, four minutes from the church, uh, but now I was not involved, as I could see it, uh, in this church that we had come to be involved in. And so I was frustrated, and I began to talk with our uh, field leader about this situation. He was a a man about my age. He was a brand-new field leader. That's a whole other story. We had a, a big issue on the field when we first came, and the old field leader did something inappropriate. He had to leave. This man stepped into his place. And uh, we were just not communicating. Uh, Very different culture. He was a very different culture from mine. And in his culture, uh, it was considered arrogant and rude uh, to express your disagreement with the leader. Uh, Arrogant to explain your background, to explain what you could do, what you wanted to do. And the expectation was that a... a, um, assignment will be given to you, and no matter what that was, you would accept what it was uh, without questions asked. And so it was frustrating for me. Uh, This is my, now he would give me another internship, so this is my fourth internship, and I was beginning to feel like a bit of a professional intern and wondering when my life was going to start, and it was quite frustrating. So after a year or so of this uh, type of just uh, frustration that I had in my life, 
uh, not being utilized the way I wanted to. I was in, in our living room in uh, the town of Rito, and I was angry. I was a little depressed, and I was about to give, uh, let my wife uh, you know, vent again to my wife. My poor wife can tell you uh, how many times I've expressed these things to her. But instead of that, I decided, well, I'm going to pray this time. I'm going to pray and pray the feelings to God, which, by the way, is interesting, isn't it? We don't have to suppress our emotions. We don't have to vent them, but we can pray them to God. And uh, it's one way of dealing with, with emotions. So I did that. And as I did that, I realized something that uh, was very interesting. Uh, my frustration, my anger was not all about the fact that a bad decision had been made in my case. Uh, it wasn't just about I wanted to do more and they weren't letting me do more. But some of it was about what they were doing to me. They were doing these things not just to anybody. They were doing these things to Matt Cummings. Right? Uh, Matt Cummings, who could speak Japanese, uh, who grew up in Japan, who knew this, that, who had, who had this resume that you never even looked at, he didn't care about, right? And they were doing these things to Matt Cummings. And uh, what I realized from that was that that's something that God is trying to get at in my heart. That was pride, right? And I had to let go of that. And when I did, uh, I felt at least peace, at least the, the anger went away. I didn't agree with still with the situation, but I had more peace about it. I had less frustration about it. And I was able to uh, hang in there and deal with things a lot better. So pride is, a, is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, let's meditate a little bit on it before we move on. What is pride? Well, pride, uh, it seems to me, is taking credit for something that we have no right to take credit for. Taking credit for something we have no right to take credit for. And uh, this is found, uh, get that definition from 1 Corinthians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. I don't think I put it up there. So 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, I'll just read this. It says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, and so we take pride in things like uh, our educational level, uh, our intelligence, our talents and gifts, uh, maybe our uh, socioeconomic level, our family background. These are the kinds of things that we get a sense of self-worth and satisfaction from. But God says that's all uh, things that you didn't earn, you had nothing to do with. Everything you have, you received. And so we can't take credit for it. So pride is taking credit for something that we have no right to take credit for, isn't it? Uh, basically, it's stealing God's glory. Uh, it's a glory. We're glory thieves uh, when we have pride. And uh, I just was thinking back, you know, uh, to my history in Philadelphia. And I was able to, when I retired from the school district of Philadelphia, they gave me a little bit of money, not, not much, don't misunderstand, a little bit, and I put it in the bank, and I'm able to uh, use that from time to time. But I wouldn't have been able to get that if I hadn't retired from the school district. Uh, and I wouldn't have been able to even teach in the school district if I hadn't been in Philadelphia. And I wouldn't have been able to stay in Philadelphia if it hadn't been uh, for when I was 24, I ran out of money, and uh, I was unemployed, I didn't have a job, and I was thinking of moving to a different city. I was having a hard time getting established here. 
And out of nowhere, uh, my grandmother, who was living in Philadelphia as well at the time, uh, handed me a check for $500. I hadn't really mentioned anything to her about my need. But I was able to survive that month, get me through that month, uh, and I was able to move on and find a job after that uh, in the public schools. And so what do I have that I have not received, right? What do any of us have that we have not received? If we think back in our lives, at some point, somewhere along the way, God gave it to us, right? It was a favor from God. It was a gift from God. Uh, And so we need to be careful about rooting our identity in anything else, rooting our sense of self-worth in anything else than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, What are some effects of pride? Uh, Pride uh, divides, doesn't it? Pride explodes relationships. It explodes uh, with your friends, with your family. It can even explode uh, relationships within the church. Pride prevents us from seeing things about ourselves, doesn't it? Uh, one way to see, one way to ask yourself, to, to discover pride in your heart, because pride is hard to see, is how do I take criticism? Right? Does anyone here like to take criticism? You do it for a hobby? Uh, I don't. It's very difficult. Why? Because our identity, our sense of self and self-worth is rooted in a certain feeling about ourselves. And when that's threatened, very difficult. How do we take criticism? Pride is quick to criticize others. And this is a big thing. This is, I'm saying this to myself. Pride is very quick to criticize others because we see ourselves inflated and we see others, we see their faults much more easily. We forget about our own, right? And so pride, God hates pride. And uh, in closing, let's just think about, do we hate pride as much as God does? I know I don't, but I'm learning two more, believe me. (laughs) Uh, Do we hate pride as much as God does? Because God really does not like pride, and he will go after it in our lives. That's the second lesson. The, The last lesson, I'm running out of time here, is uh, what well, is an interesting one. I never thought I would come across this, but I did. And it's uh, don't provoke, don't envy. And this uh, was brought home to me as I was preaching through the book of Galatians and, uh, at, at a church. And I, Galatians is a great book. And I thought what I would get out of it was more appreciation of grace, of justification, the righteousness of Christ, so on and so forth. But what really hit me was Galatians 5, verse 22. Verse 26, I'm going to read uh, 25 and 26. If I can find it here. Okay. Um, It says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And... uh, The background to this is the relationship that I spoke about with my field leader. Uh, It continued to be a very difficult relationship. Many misunderstandings that came to a sort of a boiling point uh, where charges were made, accusations were made that I felt were unfair. And uh, that didn't bother me a whole lot. But then those got uh, made known to some people whose opinion I cared about. And that bothered me a lot. I felt, uh, you know, I felt I had been wronged. And uh, I, began to, I began to lose sleep. I don't know if any of you here have uh, struggled with sleep. I never struggled with sleep in my life. I was a public school teacher. I didn't struggle with sleep. Uh, but I began to lose sleep. You know, it's, it's difficult, I tell you, to fu- try and function with 
lack of sleep. And I basically had insomnia for about a six-week period there, halfway through our term. And um, I was able to let some of that go eventually, praise the Lord. But this relationship was extremely difficult. Part of it was cultural, very different cultures, uh, extremely opposite in our cultural viewpoints. And we just couldn't communicate. And uh, as I read this verse, and by the way, this is uh, just to give you an idea of how bad this was. Other missionaries were leaving the field over this problem. Probably five or six families we had uh, leave the field. And so it was a very difficult problem. But uh, as I read this verse, the Holy Spirit just kind of smacked me over the head. And I was reading Tim Keller's uh, commentary about it. And he said there's, in, in, a, in a relationship, there's often two types uh, of uh, problems. There's a p- people who provoke and the people who envy. I thought, well, I'm not a provoker. You know, you know, I'm probably envy. I couldn't really see that either. But, you know, but as I read his list, I realized, wow, I, I think I'm provoking this man. You know? And uh, what he said was, uh, the provoking people, here's what they do. They blow up. If you're a provoker, you tend to blow up in a conflict. Envy, you clam up. Well, okay, I was blowing up from time to time. Uh, provoke, you pick arguments. Envy, you avoid confrontation. I wasn't shy about expressing my opinion, right? Uh, Provoke, you get very down on individuals and certain groups of people. Ouch, right? I was down on him. I was down on the group that he represented. Envy, you often embarrassed and intimidated around certain classes or kind of people. So provoking, you look down. Envy, you're looking up and wishing you you had what they have. Provoke, when criticized, you get very angry and judgmental and attack right back. Uh, It wasn't quite me, but I've done that before. (laughs) Uh, Envy, you get very discouraged and defensive and make lots of excuses and give right in. So criticism discourages you instead of angers you. Last one, provoke. You often think, I would never do what that person has done. And that was a big part of what I was doing. I would never lead the way he's leading. Envy, you often look at people and think, I can never accomplish what this person has done. And you feel more inferiority rather than superiority. Well, interesting, isn't it, how both of these things are rooted in, in, in what? Our, fr- our friend pride, right? Here's what it says. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, there's that word pride, provoking one another, envying one another. Wow, interesting. I can kind of see how provoking is rooted in pride because you think you're, it sounds like you think you're better than the other person, and that drives them crazy, Right? It's the attitude that drives somebody crazy, the attitude of provoking. I'm pretty good at this, by the way. Since my mother's here, I'll tell this story because she, she told me I did this. Uh, when I was two years old, we were living in Germantown, and uh, they were back from Japan. My dad was getting ready to go back. And she says I used to come up to her bed in the morning, uh, my little two-year-old self, and wake her up and look her full in the eye and say very slowly, I love Daddy! and then I would run off and she would chase after me squealing so I'm pretty good at this aren't I I'm I'm a natural provoker you know my goodness forgive me Lord so wow it was interesting to see that in myself isn't it so you can I can kind of see how provoking is more rooted in pride because it comes from a sense of I'm better than this person they should not be doing that but envy well how is envy rooted in pride Interesting, isn't it? Well, envy, I believe, is rooted in pride because it's still about you, isn't it? 
It's still about you. You're thinking they have something that if I had that thing, my life would be all better, right? Envy is about wanting somebody else's life, isn't it? Uh, And envy is a very interesting thing, by the way. How many of us would like to be accused of, how many of us would be willing to admit publicly that we're envious or jealous? I would have a hard time doing that. Why? Who wants to be known as an envious person, right? A jealous, that's petty, you know? That's a very small thing uh, to be, to have to be, to have that be known about yourself. But envy is an interesting thing. And uh, one other thing about envy is that envy, I think, reveals the things that are most important to us, doesn't it? You know, I, I found this to be true about myself. Very interesting. My, my cousin in, in Oregon, uh, she, she published a children's book recently. A beautiful, uh, beautiful illustrated book. I forget what it's called or I would advertise it to you. Uh, but she published a children's book. And I did not feel a shred of envy about that, let me tell you. Because I can't draw. I can't paint to save my life. I can never do what she did, write a children's book. What that shows me is that I don't really value that that much. That's not where my identity is. But there's other things. There's other things that make me jealous and make me envious. When I see somebody getting that thing, that's the thing. If I follow that, the thread of my envy back to that thing, I find something there that's more important to me than Jesus Christ. And so I don't know. I just throw this out to you. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I have no, nobody in my mind when I made this point, just me, uh, but maybe, the, maybe for some of you this is applicable. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship like I was, and you're just not making any headway. Could it be that you're on one of these sides of the fence? Could it be that you're provoking this person unconsciously by things that you're doing? You're th- even things that you're thinking, your, your attitudes can be picked up. They can be sensed by other people. Could it be that you're provoking this person? And if so, we need to repent uh, and root our identity in Christ. Could it be that you're jealous of this person? Can, can we admit that to ourselves, that we have jealousy? Could it be that you, this person has something you think if you have it, your life is going to be better? Could that be the case? If that's so, we also uh, need to let that thing go and root, repent, put our identity back in Jesus Christ. And if there's anybody here today uh, who doesn't know what I'm talking about, about the identity in Jesus Christ and, and repenting and letting things go, I'm also here to testify uh, that Jesus is the thing uh, that is going to fill your heart with satisfaction and joy. Um, I don't know how much more to say about that. I could go on about that for a while, but I'm running out of time. Uh, so I first, uh, I first was, was uh, touched by this, and my heart was changed uh, 20-some years ago now, reading uh, Roseanne Trott's mother's book. And the Lord did a deep work in my heart and brought me to faith in him. Uh, that's, I, I count that the day of my conversion. And I know he can do the same for you. Amen? Amen. Amen.